listening to the weekly sermon podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. If you'd like to learn more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now this week's sermon from the series Identity, a study on the book of Ephesians. Father God, I thank you for your love demonstrated in your son. We delight in your word. We sang it. And Lord, I just pray that that would be the case as we open it this morning, that your people would delight in the law of your word and the son who was perfect from birth and the day that he's returning to earth and that we would long for that. Father, as we open the scriptures given to us for our benefit and for your glory, I just ask the Spirit of God to come upon me in a mighty way so that you would be glorified, Lord Jesus, and so that your church would be built and edified and and there would be life change in our people. Um, Not that there would be great width of our church, but there would be great depth in our church and the people of God would grow and that people would come to faith in Jesus uh, and their lives be changed and reconciled to you. That's our prayer, and it's not something that we can do. It is a spirit thing. It is something that the Spirit of God must do, and so I ask him to fall fresh on me, Father. For your name's sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks. You guys have a seat. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 3. And if you're visiting and you don't have a Bible, you can grab one right in front of you. And we're on page 634. That's where we'll be. Um, Instead of just kind of fumbling around and looking for your way. Page 634. My name is Bill. And um, I'm the teaching pastor here. One of several pastors. Um, We're glad you're here if you're visiting. If this is your first time. We've been in a series on the book. Of Ephesians for several weeks now. Um, I've been thinking about this week. What is it that? What is the one thing that faithful churches have in common? If you, if you kind of laid them all out there, these churches are doing what God's called them to do. They're seeing fruit. What do they do? What is it about them? Is it their preaching? Is it their small groups? Do they have a great vision for the church? Um, do they have some clearly defined mission? Is there kind of you know great systems behind the scene? What is it that sustains the health and the progress and, and makes the life of the church move forward? And as those, all those things are good and there's nothing wrong with them, those are not the key. The key is, is prayer that undergirds all those things, that makes all those things move forward. That's what sustains the life of the church. And, and as you read the New Testament and you look at the letters of Paul and Peter and James and John, it's just filled with prayers. Constantly, I pray this, I pray this. Or it's filled with prayer reports. This is what I was praying, this is what happened. Or, or even requests, please pray for me. So much of the New Testament revolves around, around prayer. And it's our privilege this morning as we study chapter 3, and we're going to look at 14 to 21, to look at another one of Paul's prayers. We already looked at one in chapter 1. This is the second prayer in this little letter. Where he's praying for this church that he loved. This is a church that was special to the apostle. All right, He spent more time here probably than any other church. He sends his protege, Timothy, to this church. The last church he visits before he gets imprisoned in Jerusalem is this church. All right, so this is a special church to the apostle. He's got a heart for these people, and we get the privilege of studying as the Spirit of God has has brought it through time through the Scripture, what his prayer for these people that were so special to him was. What is it that he was praying? And if you want to ask, you ask constantly people saying, how can we pray for the church? What can we pray for CBC? You want to know what to pray? Pray this. 
pray these things that the apostle prays for. And it's not just for, not for churches only. You want to pray for something for your kids or for, your, for those who you're leading in your small group or in, in, in the area of your life where you have authority and these people are under you or the people you're trying to reach or, or yourself. You want to pray for something? Pray these. Right? Pray these things. It's a great little passage. And, and kind of where we're going is this. There's two big picture requests that he gives us in this passage. Two big things that he's praying for. That's the kind of what. So if you're kind of the note-taking outline guy, we're going to look at the what he's praying, what we should be looking for, what we should be pursuing, what we should be praying. But before that, he gets into a little bit of a how. And I know some of you have been Christians a long time. You're like, I I know this. I've heard this. I've done the Lord's Prayer, blah, blah, blah. This is more of a reminder for you. But this is for the, the many people who are in here who are intimidated by prayer, who are like, prayer, that's kind of a scary concept. I don't know what that looks like. I've never been taught. So just kind of bear with that first part of the how, because it's review for some of you and new to others. But then we'll get into the what in just a little bit, okay? So let's read our text in its entirety, then we'll come back and unpack it. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we all ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So Paul starts by saying, for this reason, and if you were here last week, you really, he started last week by saying, for this reason, and then he went all ADD on us and for 13 verses kind of went off on a tangent. Well, he finally picks back up for the, oh Yeah. For this reason, he meant to pray for them last week, but then he went off in this Holy Spirit inspired ADD moment. And now he's back. He's saying, in light of what I've said, and what has he said so far in chapters one and two, that you were in Adam, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You could not come to God. You did not seek God. There was none who do. No, not one. But God chose you and he adopted you and he opened your eyes and he's taken the two, the Gentile and the Jew, and he's made them one in the body of Christ, the church, who are now building into a temple built on Christ. All those things are true of you. You are loved. You're forgiven of your sin. Your eyes have been opened by the spirit. And in light of all that, he links all that information to this prayer. Now, in light of all that, here's what I'm praying for you. And he makes three statements in 14 and 15. And we'll move through them pretty quick because I want to get to the content of the prayer. But these things are little reminders of how to pray. The first one is this. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. Now, bowing for a Jew is not a very common, common way to pray. Most of them stand. But Paul says, I get on my knees. What is getting on your knees? What is it a sign of? It's a sign of humility. It's a sign of surrender. You watch the little cops, bad boy, bad boy. What do they do? They corner the guy. He's under the house. They get up. Get on your knees. They don't say, go, go run around. Jumping jack, stand up, get down. They don't, they get on your knees, get on your face. Why? Because it's an I surrender position. And Paul is saying, when I come before the father, I surrender. There is humility. And when, so you, when you pray, just a reminder, you pray in humility because the, the attitude of your heart reflects what you believe by God. There's all sorts of postures of prayer. You don't have to be on your knees. You can stand, you can sit, you can be in the shower, you can sing, you can write your prayers, you can think them in your head, you can do whatever, you can do them in the car. 
God is not concerned with the mode of prayer as much as the heart behind the prayer. And so your heart is in a reflection of what you think about God. You can be on your knees and be very arrogant and proud. You could be standing like the Jew, Jewish Pharisee, which was a common stance of prayer, and be saying, I thank you, O God, that I am not like this man, and have all the words right, but your heart is not right. And so God says, he went away, he didn't get forgiveness. It's the attitude of the heart. How do you come before God? It says a lot what you think about God. And so if it's always, give me this, give me that, give me this, I want it by Thursday, I want it by Friday, I want it by this, then it shows you you think God is your secretary. That he is there to help you. Right? He's your assistant. Or maybe the only time you talk to God is when you got your latte in one hand and you're texting in the other and you're driving with your mouth. And that shows that you don't have a lot of time for God. That this kind of a last second thing. Right? Paul says, I come in humility. Right? Not afraid. He comes with confidence, not confidence in himself, verse 12, confidence in what Christ has done. But there's a confidence and there's a humility. So when you pray, just pray in humility. That's the first thing he says. And he's, so back to the text. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Before the Father. Underline that. Circle that word Father. It's essential to grasp it. Right? And we've talked about it before. But understand, tr- prayer is a very Trinitarian idea. It's a very Trinitarian thing. We pray by the Spirit. Through the Son and to the Father. In the Trinity, we have three persons. There's one God who eternally exists and three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Each one is fully God, yet there is one God. Right? So we pray to the Father through Jesus, the Son, who died on the cross for our sins, was, was risen to prove that he was conquering sin and death, who sits at the right hand, who is mediating for us as we speak. You do it in the power of the Spirit, who fills you, who empowers you, who's the one who opened your eyes to the gospel in the first place, who gave the ability to follow Christ, who gives you the ability now to follow Christ, who gives you the ability to love Christ. And so prayer is God in you through the Spirit, praying to the Father through access of Christ, because what he has done... That's prayer. It's very Trinitarian. And he says, I pray to the Father. Does that mean you can't pray to the Spirit and the Son? No, we're not legalistic. Oh, you can never, He doesn't hear you if you pray to the Spirit. You've got to go to the Father. Sorry. You know, call the other number. You know? You pray to the Spirit. Fill me. Illumine the Scripture to me. Empower me to resist temptation. You can pray to Christ. Help me. You are a high priest who can sympathize. So, so comfort me and show, show me by your Spirit this. And, and you can pray there. But the direction Scripture typically says is you pray to the Father. And that's important because that's the motivation. He's a father. He is a dad. And we talked about this a lot when we did the Sermon on the Mount. But just let me remind you why that's a motivation. There's hundreds and hundreds of books written on prayer. How to pray, what to pray, when to pray, blah, blah, blah. And most of them, quite honestly, are depressing. Because you read them and you read about a guy who prays 18 hours a day. And then you realize that his prayer partner prays 37 hours a day. And his buddy prays 63 hours a day and had his legs amputated because he prays so much. And you read that and it's like, I'll never be like that. I'm, I'm a CEO of a company. I, I barely have time in the morning. I wake up early. I'm, I'm a mother of seven. I, 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 whatever it is. And so we read that and we're depressed. Oh, I can't ever hold up. I can't be like St. Francis of Assisi and pray for three weeks straight without eating. I just can't do that. Woe is me. And when he says to the father, it's a motivation to us. You're praying to your dad. You don't have to wear a funny hat, wear a necklace and talk in Latin. You can talk to your dad like a kid talks to a dad who loves him. In fact, that's where Jesus goes when he says, you want to learn to pray? Here's how you start. Father, which was radical for an Old Testament Jew. 
They would never have called God their father. But he says, because you are in me, because my identity as the son of God and you are in Christ and your identity is there. That's why identity is so important because you are in Christ. You can call him dad and you can approach him as a dad who loves you. And so you want to learn how do you talk to your dad? Just get to know your dad. And if you get to know your dad, it's easy to talk to him. The more dad knows his kids, the easier it is. My kids don't come with cue cards. Dearest father. May we have lucky charms for dinner. Pleaseth. They don't have to have something written down, something scripted. They come to me and say, Dad, can we have lucky charms at St. Patrick's Day, right? I use Irish Spring today, Dad, clean as a whistle. I mean, you know, they can talk to me. And I can talk to them. Why? Because I'm their dad. And that's the idea. Part of your identity is that you are in Christ. He is your dad. And so you can come to him and just talk. That's all prayer is, is talking to your father. And you can talk to your dad. Why? He's your dad because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And you can talk now in the power of the Holy Spirit. Who, who when we don't know what to say, he, he intercedes for us, Romans 8. Right? So that's what he invites us to do it. And I know that's hard maybe for some of you because you didn't have a good dad or you had no dad. Or an absentee dad or a dad who was abusive. And I get that. But understand this. Part of being in Christ is the fact that you have the best dad ever. And so you don't have to worry about ever being abused or left or unloved, being unloved. Because he's a perfect heavenly father. So you come with humility and you pray to your father. Because God is a father. Right? And then the last thing, verse 14 again and 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And the Greek text is kind of clear here, but it comes across a little bit ambiguous in English. He's not saying that God is the father of everybody and that everyone, all roads lead to heaven and he's just the father. Let scripture interpret scripture. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. That's what John says. So not everyone can call him dad, only those who have believed. But in some sense, in the Greek, there's a play on words here where he's used the word pater, which is father, and patria, which is family. And, and they would understand what he's saying, that he is kind of the patriarch. He's the beginning place. Everybody else in heaven and earth showed up at some point. Angels, humans, elephants, everything. But he never just showed up. He was always there. He is the father and the idea where he is the creator. And some of your translations actually go that way and say he is the creator. And that's the idea. He is the creator. He is the all-powerful one. And because he does, he hears. You're not just praying out into the sky hoping someone hears. You pray. And when you pray, you know that your father hears. And if you don't think that he hears, if you don't have faith that he hears, he will not answer. Because if you don't pray in faith, he says, don't expect to receive anything. If he is God and he is sovereign, he is creator, he hears prayer. He said, well, he hadn't been hearing me because I've been praying for six years and he hasn't answered me. Yes, he has. He said no. That's not always easy. I'm a dad. I say no all the time. Sometimes I say not now. Sometimes I say yes. That's what God does, but he hears. And so when you pray in humility to your father, expecting that he hears. I know, that's, I know that you know that, some of you, and I, I appreciate that. I'm glad. But some people don't, and they, don't, they see this thing as scary, and I don't know how to pray, and I hear all these words, and they have TH at the end, and I don't know what they mean. Just talk to your dad. He knows what you're going to say before you say it anyway. So just talk to him. All right? So that's the how. Let's talk about the what, because this is his main point. 
So his prayer actually starts in verse 16. And each these two prayer requests that he has to them has the same structure in the text. There's an assumption of something that is true. Boom. Something that is assumed to be true, then the actual request, then the result. So in light of this assumption, he's going to request something. So let's read the first prayer. Verse 16. That, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What's the assumption? It's right at the beginning. That God is rich in glory. He's saying, whatever I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask in light of the fact that God is rich in glory. That he is majestic, that he is powerful, that he is mighty, that he wants to make that known. And so I'm going to ask something in light of the riches of his glory. Assuming because he is rich in glory, he's going to answer. My dad made the mistake when I was 18 years old and he dropped me off the Citadel. And he gave me his American Express gold card. And it said William Thomas Fowler on the bottom because that's his name and I'm a junior. So I got my name on the card. He said, use this in case of emergencies. All right. So I didn't use it for a while. And then there was an actual emergency. Didn't have cash or something. Forget what it was. American Express card. Didn't hear nothing about it. Use it again. Don't hear anything about it. Use it again. Use it again. You need tires? Use it again. Let's go out to eat. Use it again. Use it again. Use it again. Continually just using this puppy. Never hearing anything. And what was my assumption? That someone had the resources to pay it. Right? Someone was taking care of this. Someone had access to funds to buy tires for all my classmates. (laughs) Or whatever it was. And that's the assumption here. That according to the riches of his glory. God is great. God is full of glory. And because of that, here's his request. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Circle that word, inner being. Right? He's, that you be strong by his spirit in your inner being. And, and the way I kind of summarize that is this. That, that God the Holy Spirit would make them spiritually strong. That's what he's praying. In their inner being, not outside, the inside, literally the heart. That the Holy Spirit would make them strong inside. Now think about the average prayer meeting. Small group prayer, whatever it is. What is usually, you go around, let's, let's, let's share prayer requests. What are we usually praying for? Traveling mercies. 16 unspoken requests. Right? The surgery of my uncle's dog's parrot. Right? All those things. And typically they're all outward focused, right? And look, God cares about traveling mercies. And yes, there's things that we don't always divulge. Although we, against, we kind of try to get people to share their, their issues so that we can know them and help them here instead of just hiding. But God cares about those things. But you know what? He says, I'm, I'm not praying for the outside. I'm not praying that, that, that would, God would change your circumstance. That you'd get a new boss. That your spouse would check in. I'm not praying that you guys would take over the Ephesian city council. And form a Christian government in Ephesus. I'm not praying for all those things. I'm not praying for any of your outward circumstances necessarily to change. What I'm praying for is that you inside would change. That the Holy Spirit would make you strong in the inner man. That there would be something new inside of you. Not outside. See, that's a radical thing. To start praying that way. Right? That's what he's asking. That God would not change that, but he would change you. And look at the result, verse 17. So that Christ... So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What does that mean? Some of you were grown up and you're in church and you were told you need to accept Jesus in your heart. 
And you didn't know why, and you didn't know how he would fit in there, but you did it anyway. You say, where in the Bible is that? Well, here's a passage that says something about that. Unfortunately, it has nothing to do with inviting Jesus into your heart. It has nothing to do with conversion. These people are already Christians. He's not saying invite Jesus in your heart over and over and over again. That's not what makes you a Christian. And I know we do that for language for kids because it's easier to understand. But this is the only passage in the whole entire Bible that says anything to do with it. It has nothing to do with coming to faith. What it has to do with in the language here is that, that Christ would dwell and be at home in your life. That's the idea. That he would be at home permanently, constantly there, constantly directing your life. That's the language of the text. Let me give you an example. I'll explain. Some of you have gone to in-law's house, gone to your parents' house, stayed at somebody's, somebody else's house, gone to the Motel 6, whatever it is. When you go to those places, you go to the Motel 6. You check in. Most of us, if we're normal, don't go in and start moving furniture around. I don't like the bed here. I'm going to move it. TV on this wall. Oh, look at these curtains. I don't like them. Let's go down to Lowe's. Let's buy some new curtains for this room. Oh, and the tile too. Oh, we need a new sink. You don't go changing at all. Why? Because you don't live there. Because you're going to be gone in a day or two. Now, if you do that, you need to come in for counseling this week. But what happens when you buy a home? You watch a little HGTV, little Property Brothers, little Love It or List It. Your wife gets inspired. She says, I want to paint this room. Paint that room. And she says, well, now the hall needs to be painted because the room is good and the hall looks bad. Paint the hall. But the hall leads to the den. Got to paint the den now. Paint the den. Which touches the kitchen. Boom. Which paints the other bedroom. Boom. And you finish it and you've done it all. And then she goes back and says, I don't know if I like that first room's color. I want you to go back and paint that. And now the hall doesn't match that. So you do it and you work your way around again. And there's constant renovation and constant change. Why? Because that is where you live. That is where you dwell. And what Jesus is saying here, or Paul is saying, is that he doesn't want Jesus just coming in for a long weekend. Comes in and leaves. He doesn't want you just inviting him in when you've made a mess of everything. You've blown it all up. Come in and fix the house, Jesus, and then go leave and I can live independently of you again. He says, I want him there constantly renovating, constantly cleaning, constantly building. That's what he does. When he moves in your life, he says, okay, we're going to work on this room. Boom. He works in that room and he moves. In my life, when I first got saved, it was my language. I couldn't be foul mouth fowler anymore. I can't proclaim a, a gospel and have a filthy mouth. And so that's the first year. And I honestly thought, once I get done with cursing, man, I'm going to be like Billy Graham. I'm going to be, the, I mean, it'll be great. But then God shows me, oh, there's another room to work on here. Okay, we work on that. Oh, and then that, now we're working on this room. And then we're working on this room. And then what happens? And all of you know this is you've been in your house more than five years. My wife came to me a couple weeks ago and said, I want to paint the bathroom. I said, I just painted it like five years ago. It's fine. It looks great. She says, no, I want to paint it. So I tape it up. I hate taping. I tape it up. She works all weekend, paints it. She puts a new shower curtain. She puts a new floor rug she gets this little flower thing she got on sale the big loss woo and it looks great i thought it looked good already she comes in and boom it looks like hgtv visited the house it's great see and that's what jesus does in our lives he works on this area boom he shapes it he moves on to the next he comes back around again we're going to shape you a little bit more now boom and it look you look back and you're like i thought it was good before look what he's done now look what christ is doing in me and it's constantly going on and that is his prayer 
You think you're done. No, I want him dwelling in your hearts constantly. I want him constantly there moving and making you more like Jesus. So you need to be strong. And I'm praying that the spirit would make you strong so that that would take place. That's his prayer. You want to pray for CBC? You want to pray for all the other churches in this town? Pray that the spirit of God would make us spiritually strong so we look more like Jesus. Pray that we wouldn't get a mile wide and one inch deep. Because that's not what we need. We need depth and we need maturity and we need to look more like Christ. Pray that for your kids, that they would be strong to resist the temptation that they're constantly facing. That they would not be unequally yoked in their relationships and especially with their spouse. Pray for you that you would be willing to change. Because most of us want change out there, but we're not willing for us. But prayer often changes us more than others. Jesus didn't tell us to pray for our enemies because he wants our enemies to become our allies. He says, pray for your enemies so that you will stop being bitter against them and you will love them. Not so that they will change. Whether they change or not is not the point. The point is that you change. Because it's real hard to be bitter and gossip and slander and angry at that person when you're praying for them. See, that's the idea. Prayer changes us. And so he says, I want you to be strong inside. I want Christ to dwell constantly. I want their renovation to be there so that you look like Christ more and more every day. That's hard. That's the first prayer. The result, they would be spiritually strong. They would be spiritually strong. Right? That he would be the center of their lives constantly. All right, let's look at the next passage, the next part, 17b, second half, right? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And here's the next part. Remember, there's an assumption, there's a request, and then there is a, uh, a result. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the assumption right up front that you have been rooted and grounded in love and the tense of the verb in the original is something that's in the past but still true in the present that you were rooted and you still are that you were grounded and you still are. Right? It's because you've been rooted, and roots are important for a plant, right? Because you've been grounded, and, and a, a foundation for a building is important. You've been rooted and grounded in love. And because of that, in light of that, here's what I'm praying. That you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. And this word comprehend, it's a great word. It's two Greek words, katalambano, put together. And it means to grasp or seize or, or chase after something to get your arms around it. He says, I want you to know, to chase down, to seize this, this thing that's big. That's magnificent. And he uses terms to describe the size of it. it. It's got breadth and length and height and depth. And the idea is not that you can get your little tool me- tool tape measure out and say, well, how tall, how big is this thing? Yeah. yeah. It's so that you'll see how immense. It's like a little kid for the first time from the country. He sees New York City and he just is overwhelmed how big and how tall and how, how wide and big. And that's the idea. So I want you to grasp. I want you to seize. I want you to grab after something that's immense and huge and enormous. And what is it that you would know the love of Christ? And he's basically praying this, that you guys, you Ephesians, would just know how much Jesus loves you. How much Messiah Jesus loves you. And there's a little irony here. I love the text because he's, he's, 
He almost seems like he's like saying one thing and then saying the other thing. I mean, he says, I want you to know the breadth and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. And then he says, that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something that you can't really know. That once you think you got it, it just blows your mind again. And then once you think you got it again and you've caught it, it just blows your mind again. I want you to know that and it surpasses knowledge. It'll blow your mind. And the fact that he's praying this for them. A good church, which he has said has been grounded and rooted in love, which he's already said in chapter one that they are loving. The fact that he's praying that they would know that Jesus loves them shows that sometimes, guess what? They don't know it. Which means sometimes we don't know it. Sometimes you don't know or you doubt how much God loves you. If you're honest, because your circumstances are bad. And you don't know why God hasn't saved your husband yet. And you don't know why you haven't had children or you, that adoption hasn't come through. Or why I got cancer and why they don't. Why I don't have a job yet or I have half the job I need and they don't. And you feel like God doesn't love you, that he's abandoned you because of your circumstances. Or maybe it's because your sinfulness and you feel like, who could love me? I mean, look, have you knew what I was thinking half the time? If you know the week that I've had, if you know where I've been, no, yeah, everyone here has come from church or, you know, they got a little issues, but they've never been where I have. See, when you let your circumstances or your sin determine God's love, you're missing the point. And, and for maybe some of you, it just sounds trite. God loves you. And you just think, yeah, I know that. I've sung the song, Jesus loves me. This I know. Know about the cross, know about the tomb. And if that's your response, it shows how little you really do know. Because he said it's got depth. Right? Your circumstances, your sin, these are not the determining factor for God's love. If, if circumstances determine how much God loves someone, then Jesus was the most hated of all. Because he became the object of God's wrath. And if sin was the determining factor, then who can be loved? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So you may have your mess and you have your circumstances and have all that stuff that you've done. You've rejected God. You've, you're in, sitting in the, the, the slough of despond that you've created. But if you look just beyond, you'll see a hill called Golgotha. You'll see a cross and you'll see a tomb that's empty. That is the love of Christ. Not these things. And Paul's prayer is just that the church would just... You got to taste it a little bit, just a little bit, because when you taste it a little bit, then you'll have more. And when you taste it a little bit and for him, it's essential for the church. He's praying a theology is important and reading the fathers is important and reading Piper. Yeah, it's great, but not as important as studying and knowing and understanding the love of Christ. That's what he's saying. This is essential. How you were atoned for, you a rebel, you a, a, a follower of the devil, you a, a idolater. You who did not seek God. And he says, I don't care. I love them anyway. And he opens your eyes and he brings you to himself. And he atones for your sin by killing his own son. And now he calls you a son or a daughter. Jesus calls you brother, sister. That we would grasp that and, and just understand that a little bit more than we do, church. That we would understand it. That we would seize it. That we would be amazed by it. Do you know how much Christ loves you? And the proper answer is actually, no, you don't. You don't. 
Because he says you can't know, even though he wants you to. You can't grasp it completely. You can't know it fully. And so we're going to sing a hymn in a few minutes. And the, and the author on the last verse says this. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole. Those stretched from sky to sky. That's the idea. That's what he's praying. That you would know something about the transforming love of Christ. And the result is what? What does he say the result is? That you may be filled with the fullness of God. I.e. that you would experience the fullness of God in your life. That, that, that you know Christ and the love of Christ then, 2 Corinthians 5.14, would control you, would compel you, as Paul says. Not your love for God, it's God's love for you would compel you. Because you know how great you've been loved, and thus you turn around and you love others. And you love him, because you love him because he first loved us. That your life is an overflow, that there's an emotive response, that there's a response to his love. I don't want my children to respond to my love. I come home, and I don't want them to say, good evening, Father. You know the word father, the entomology of the word father comes from the Latin father us. And welcome home, home, this is the latitude, longitude, 40, this, this. I I don't want this information, blah. What I want when I come home from these children I love is I want love in return. I want an emotional response. I want my kids to run up and hug my leg. I want to hear about the jellyfish they made from a little plate. I want to see the Lego car that they made and hear about your day and get loveys and huggies or whatever you call them in your house. That is what I love. And that's what I want for my children. That is what God wants. What he fills you up that compels you. And we always talk in the church. Love is not emotion. No emotion in love. Right? It's a choice. Love is a choice. That sounds great. Try it on your, on your wedding day. I, honey, I love you, but I have no emotion for you. <laughs> See how the honeymoon goes. Right? Look, it's okay to be emotional in love. And that doesn't mean you're falling in the aisles and crazy. What it does mean is God has loved us. And so there is an emotion there and a response. And he wants us to have joy. And it's okay to sing loudly and badly because of love. Because there is emotion there. And that's what he desires. That there would be a fullness and it would drive you and it would compel you. Two big picture requests. That you would be spiritually strong so that Christ would be in you and moving in you. And secondly, you just know Christ's love for you and that would compel you and fill you up. And then he closes with this great benediction. Now to him, this is the Father, who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. That's the Spirit. To him be glory in the church. That's the prayer. That the Father would be glorified in us through the Spirit and in Christ. And this theme of God's glory is throughout the scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. That God will be glorified. And it just means that his splendor and his majesty and his beauty and his holiness and his purity. And his preeminence and his superiority and his weightiness would be made known. Where? In the church. How is that possible? Because he's a God who can do far more beyond what we can ask and think. And this is not an invitation to ask him to win the Powerball. Because that is about your glory. 
It's about his glory. And so the whole reason Paul is praying that they would be strong and Christ would dwell in them. What, what's going to happen if Christ is moving and shaping them more like Christ? Then Christ is going to be glorified and he's going to be made known. And what is going to happen if they grasp the love of God and it compels them to be full of him? They're going to tell others of the love of Christ and Christ is going to be glorified. That is the why. That is why we do church. We don't want to grow church to grow a church. We want to grow it to the name of Christ exists and is great in the nations. This is why this is why we do missions. As Piper says so well, missions exist because worship does not. The goal of missions is worship. That the name of Christ would be made known. That is why we do what we do. That is why we gather as the body of Christ than to take the name of Christ to the nations. That is the point. And so as you pray for this church and as you pray for your kids, don't just pray them into Princeton. Great. Pray that God will be glorified whatever happens. Pray in your life that whatever happens, whether it's cancer or, or you're the next guy at this seminary or whatever, or preaching at this, that God will be glorified. Ask, what does it look like for God to be glorified in this relationship? How we are physically single people. Is God glorified in the way you are in your relationship with your boyfriend, girlfriend? Is God glorified in the way you talk to your spouse? Is God glorified in the way you are using your money? Is God glorified in the way you're using your gifts? Was God glorified the way you were at the parade yesterday? That's the questions. That's what matters. Was Christ made known through you? That's the heart of the church. That Christ will be glorified. Let me give you some things to pray for for us. Because there's a lot. Right? Pray these things. And we're going to have a time of corporate prayer. We gotta, you guys just can sit and pray and the guys will play for a little bit. And then we'll stand and sing. But pray these specific things for us as a church. Not only that our church will be deep and the people would know the love of Christ. We're searching actively for Peter's replacement. Many of you know that. We've interviewed many a person. And we have a couple more potentials on the horizon. Just pray that the elders would see clearly who it is God wants to replace Peter. It's a big position. We need it filled. And so we just ask for wisdom there so that you guys would pray for that. Pray for, for Easter and the week ahead. Right? This is the Super Bowl for Christians. You probably had somebody over your house for the Super Bowl, ate some wings for a team, quite honestly, that you didn't care about. Most of you don't like the Ravens or the 49ers, but you watched it and you celebrated it and you ate food. This is the Super Bowl for Christians, and we have rented a place downtown. There's two Marriott's, by the way. We're at the big one at the end of Truman. So don't go to the other Marriott. You'll be like, where's the church? They'll be like, we don't know. All right, so we're at the end of the Truman right there, that big one on the river. We've rented out the big room in there. We, if we bring every CBC or in there, we'll still have six or 700 seats probably open. That's a lot of friends that you can invite. It's a lot of friends. You can invite them to hear about your Jesus. You say, well, I don't have any lost friends. That is a problem. Then you need to get out. A little bit. All right? You could have went to the parade yesterday. It was plenty of them downtown. Right? You are here to make God's name great. And it is real easy to say, hey, we are having an Easter service. Most people go to church on Easter anyway. Why don't you come with us? It's down at the Marriott. We can go to Spanky's afterwards. 10 o'clock in the morning. Everyone's up for the most part by 10. Just come on down. We're just going to proclaim a simple gospel message. We're going to sing great songs. We're going to have all of us in a room. There was a lot of fun last year to do that. So who are you going to, who are you going to invite? Who are you praying for? I think we're almost out of cards because the first and second service tick them all. But we'll get some more for next week.
Just give it. It's got the map on the back. Hey, here's where we're at. Come on down. We'd love to have you. My prayer is not only for that Sunday that God would open the eyes to many people to himself, but then we're having baptisms a couple weeks later, week later that some of those folks will be getting baptized a few weeks later. That's not going to happen if God's people don't pray. It's not. I don't care how great the music is, how great the sermon is. If God's people are not praying, then that will not happen because, because regeneration is a work of the Spirit, not a work of man. And when the Spirit moves is where the people of God are praying. So pray for these things. Pray for our Good Friday. We've, we've had Good Friday services in the past. We're doing something a little different this year. We're going to open the sanctuary from about 4 o'clock to 7. And we'll, we're going to have the table down front. And there's going to be a little music. Some worship leaders are here. And we just invite you at any point between 4 and 7 to come by, sit in a chair, maybe read scripture, maybe reflect for a little bit, and then come to the table. No big fanfare, no woo, rah, rah. Just you getting alone, getting some time to think, to meditate on what we did to Christ. And then come and celebrate the table. And then two days later, on Sunday morning, we'll celebrate the resurrection. So we're not having a big service or anything, just kind of open sanctuary. There'll be a pastor here to lead you in communion if you come. Um, A couple guys singing some hymns and some songs and reading some scripture. Very simple, but a time for you to reflect on the gospel that Christ died for your sins And on Sunday, he rose again. So let's have a time of prayer. Um, In your seats, where you're at, just pray. Praise team will kind of lead us and we'll stand. Let's stand on that third verse of this hymn we're going to sing. As we we proclaim God's love. But let's first just have a season of prayer right there in your chair. And if you want to get on your knees, get on your knees. It's fine. Uh, You're before your Savior and your God. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. And allowing us access to yourself by your spirit through your son. And I pray that your people would not take that lightly or for granted. And that we would come in humility towards a father who hears us. And father, I ask specifically for our church and for all those. There's so many other good churches in this town uh, that are proclaiming the gospel. And so I pray for them as well. That we would know the love of Christ and that would compel us to just love you more. And that the churches in this town will be spiritually strong and that Christ would dwell in us through faith. That there would be constant renovation going on. That we would be reflecting the Savior and bringing glory to you, Father, forever and ever in your church, purchased in your Son's blood, sealed by your Spirit. It's in your name and for your glory we pray.